When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Today we have Ron Friedman on the podcast. Dr. Friedman is an award-winning social psychologist who specializes in human motivation. He has served in the faculty of the University of Rochester, Nazareth College, and Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and has consulted for Fortune 500 companies, political leaders, and the world's leading nonprofits. His books include The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace, and most recently, Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. Dr. Friedman, so great to chat with you today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Scott. Oh, wow. So it's been quite some time since you've last been on the Psychology Podcast, hasn't it? It has. Six years, maybe more. You were one of the early, early guests of the show. Uh, you know what? It, 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 it's always a pleasure to speak with you, but I, I have to applaud you for the incredible growth of this show, and it's a no sl- small mm-hmm. measure to, I think, your curiosity and your presence on these shows. So I don't know how much you want to speak, spend talking about you, but I'm happy to do it all show long. <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was enough. <laughs> <laughs> that was enough. I really do appreciate it. I really do appreciate it. Um, I, I'm just, I'm antsy and, well, I'm eager to jump into your new book the t- because it's an area of interest um, I've had for, for many years. I've, you know, re- obviously written this topic, tried to study it scientifically. What are the um, ingredients of greatness, you know, and, and you have a very fresh take on it, um, which comes down to trying to reverse, reverse engineer 
greatness. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means, reverse engineering greatness? Yeah, so so let me take a step back and, and just give it some context. So there are two main stories that we've been told throughout our lives about what re- what is required to achieve at the highest levels. And those two big stories are, number one, that greatness comes from talent. And this is the idea that we're all born with unique strengths and that the key to finding your greatness is identifying a field that allows your inner strengths to shine. The second major story is the Malcolm Gladwell story. It's the story of practice. It's the idea that if you just have the right practice regimen and that you have the discipline to execute against it for year after year after year, that eventually you'll become great. But what I discovered in doing the research for Decoding Greatness is that there is a third story about how people rise to the top of their professions, and it's one that's not often discussed, and we could talk about why that is, but it is strikingly common among artists and entrepreneurs and inventors, and that path is reverse engineering. And reverse engineering simply means identifying extraordinary examples in your field and then working backward to figure out how they were created. And there are all sorts of examples of this throughout history. So, you know, there we, in Silicon Valley, the idea that of reverse engineering is very well known. Uh, there's a long history of coders who have deconstructing, deconstructed winning products to identify how they were created. It's how we got the laptop and the personal computer and even the iPhone. But it goes far beyond that because what most people don't realize is that reverse engineering is how authors like Stephen King and Malcolm Gladwell learned their craft and how painters like Claude Monet and Pablo Picasso became groundbreaking artists and even how comedians like Judd Apatow became uh, remarkable, remarkably high achievers. So reverse engineering, working backwards from extraordinary examples to identify how they were created, turns out to be way more common than we've been led to believe. Amazing. You know, there's there's this uh, idea in psychology when we're trying to understand the determinants of greatness. Like Anders Ericsson, who studied the expertise approach, mm-hmm. will take experts and try to understand what is it the experts have, you know, to explain greatness. But as a lot of scientists have have critiqued that approach because it um uh it it already weeds out all the st- uh, all the predictors of it earlier on. You know, when you only look at those who have reached a certain threshold, you might be, be missing out on various characteristics and traits that were important in the earliest stages mm-hmm. of things. So how do you get around that, Chris? You know, I mean, like, I could see a scientist hearing your approach and, and asking that question. I can hear their voice in my head. Yeah. You know what? I Frankly, it's irrelevant to my enterprise because what I'm interested in is what is the methodical approach to take extraordinary examples and figure out uh, what we can learn from them. So I'm less interested in what made someone else great than I am in having an, a methodical approach for improving my own skills. And that's what decoding greatness is about. It's about the methods and the techniques that you can use to unpack extraordinary work. So one example I offer in Decoding Greatness is I show you how to reverse engineer the most popular TED Talk of all time. And that TED Talk belonged to Sir Ken Robinson, who's no longer with us. And if you go online and you check out that talk, it's the one, it's a talk about how school beats the creativity out of us. It's the idea that children are very curious at an early age. They arrive at school and then they're taught that there's only one right answer. And that uh, constant reinforcement of the idea that there's only a, one correct answer short circuits their interest in exploring different ideas. In any event, in, in Decoding Greatness, what I do is I show you how to use various techniques to, um, to, to illuminate what he's actually doing there. So one of the techniques is to reverse outline. Reverse outlining is a 
is a twist on the traditional outlining approach. So when we outline, we bullet point what we're going to put into a finished piece. Reverse outlining is taking someone else's finished piece and then working backward to identify what that outline might look like. Um, that's a technique that can help you identify what is happening over the long stretch of a, of a talk and kind of give you a big picture view of what's happening and, and so it shows you the flow. But more importantly, what I do to his TED Talk is I quantify different features, meaning I turn certain features into numbers. And I show you that over the course of this very popular, uh, just a 20-minute talk, he convey, he shares a grand total of one persuasive fact. Now, that's a remarkable statistic because if I were to create a new TED Talk, I would assume that I'd need to just really flood you with a lot of persuasive information to convince you of my point of view. He's got one persuasive fact. What's he doing a lot of? He's telling a lot of jokes. He's got 40 jokes in 20 minutes. And he is giving you a lot of personal anecdotes. And so just that short analysis that I've just shared with you in the last two minutes gives you a vastly different picture of how to craft a TED Talk than you might have had and gives you direction so that if you're creating your own TED Talk, you now have a template from which to work as opposed to just staring at the blank page. And I think that's powerful is just knowing how to take apart extraordinary examples, turn them into a template to give you that, uh, th that head start on crafting your own material, I think is invaluable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will. I love that TED talk, um, and I love that topic. You know, creativity among kids, and and may both Sir Ken Robinson and Anders Ericsson, who I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, rest in peace. Um, I have great respect for both of them. Yeah, incredible um, contributors. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, you talk a little bit about how both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates reverse engineered. The Xerox to a certain mm -hmm. degree, or they, and you make it clear, and I really liked your actually nuanced footnote. I think you should have put that footnote in the, in the main, you know, thing, but you, you have this footnote where you say, you're not saying that they, they stole the idea, but that, you know, they definitely were inspired by it and then built upon it. Can you, can you tell that story a little bit? Yeah. First of all, I want to applaud you for reading the footnote. <laughs> I, won't, I usually will prefer footnotes. <laughs> Let me tell you, right. Let me well, tell I'm you. I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. I've been on, um, you know, 50 to 100 podcasts now. I have a hard time with people reading the book, let alone the footnotes. So congratulations <laughs> to you on, on doing the homework. Um, yeah. So the story of um, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates is one that actually um, is the launching point for this book because it's probably the best and, and uh, most um, talked about example of reverse engineering in history. And it's the story mm -hmm. of how the personal computer was developed. And many people assume that Microsoft made uh, tremendous contributions and, and so did Steve Jobs. And they did, but they, the, the idea of the personal computer did not uh, emerge out of the ether. Back in the 1980s, if you wanted to use a computer, you had to use an arcane text-based language to input your instructions known as syntax. And uh, today, of course, that, that computers don't operate that way. Today, we can point and click. And the uh, that advance that allowed humans to point and click and use a visual display was called a graphic user interface. The graphic user interface was that big bridge that it, that led uh, computers to just explode all over the place because now was, they were so easy to use. You could just uh, convey your instructions using a mouse. That advancement was the contribution of Xerox in the form of a, of a computer called the Xerox Alto. Now, most people have never heard of that computer, and it's because Xerox didn't think it had the potential to be a consumer product. They were trying to sell it into very 
uh, large, very wealthy organizations at the at a price, uh, an exorbitant price of over a hundred thousand dollars. And Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were both familiar with this idea, and they thought that Xerox was sitting on a gold mine and was underutilizing this really critical idea. And so what they did was they saw that example of this underutilized technology, and then they reverse engineered it, meaning they didn't copy the code. They didn't take it, purchase one and take it apart and then duplicate the, the machine. Rather, what they did was they looked at what it did to work backward to understand how it, what might have been created. And then they took those insights and in, into radically different directions. In the case of Microsoft, they looked to make computers affordable. In the case of Apple, they looked to make computers that were artistic and were easy to use and intuitive. And both made tremendous contributions. And if it wasn't for reverse engineering, there's a good chance we wouldn't have had, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now over a computer. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I love the story you tell about how uh, they, uh, when when uh, he, Steve Jobs thought Bill was, was stealing his idea, his idea, and you know they he brought him he brought Bill over to the the meeting to a meeting, and uh, and and Bill's like, well, you know, what, what was the quote? You know, oh, uh, man. this is a great stole, quote. You you stole, is- but I. This is a tremendous showdown between these two uh, entrepreneurial giants and Steve Jobs at the time. So I kind of glossed over this part. So Steve, uh, Bill Gates was an Apple vendor at the time when he released or when he announced Windows. Steve Jobs, who's about to release the the Macintosh, finds out that Steve Jobs, that Bill Gates is about to release Windows and thinks that he has stolen it from Apple. What he didn't realize was that, in fact, Bill Gates knew about the Alto just as Steve Jobs did. And so Steve Jobs calls Bill Gates over to his office, tears into him. He says, you're stealing from us. And Bill Gates coolly responds, well, Steve, there's more than one way to look at this. It's more like we both had this um, wealthy neighbor named Xerox and I broke in to steal the television and found that you had already stolen it. And that was just a mic drop moment. And wow. uh, this this is just a small sliver of their ongoing saga, which I then describe in uh, the introductory chapter of Decoding Greatness, where there are just constant battles between these two and more than one instance of reverse engineering leading to their greatest innovations. I sure wish uh, there was a recording of that meeting. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. So, okay. So let's, let's just talk about some of these uh, maybe counterintuitive ideas in, in your book um, <laughs> because you did notice some things that uh, they go against some of the standard uh, canon of what determines greatness. Um, you say in a majority of cases, copying or, or over relying on established recipes is a losing strategy that rarely results in memorable outcomes. Um, so how do you square that with the idea of uh, the importance of reverse engineering? Cause it seems like you're contradicting yourself on the surface, but I obviously you're, you're not. But. Yeah. So that's a great point. So, so just to, um, say that a little bit differently, what I argue in this book is that if all you're doing is copying someone else's proven formula, chances are you will not succeed. And there are two critical reasons for that. The first reason is that, uh, the person who was successful with their iteration likely has some characteristics or personality traits or, uh, attributes or experiences or, um, 
reputation that enabled them to be successful the first time. So I gave the example of Sir Ken Robinson. He, he's telling 40 jokes over the course of 20 minutes. I'm not a particularly funny person. If I got up on the TED stage and tried to tell 40 jokes, it would be a disaster. It works because he's a funny guy and he's got a particular style of delivery. Um, there's another reason why simply copying someone else t tends not to work. It's because audience expectations shift with time. So in the book, I give the example of Twilight. Uh, and, and the book Twilight, for those who aren't familiar, is the story of a uh, teenager who falls in love with a vampire. When that book came out, it exploded. It was on the bestseller list for quite some time. So the, 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 all these copycats come out of, of people falling in love with vampires, and they all fail miserably. And why do they fail? It's because audience expectations shift, meaning that the idea of what was once novel it now feels you know like it's been done. It's no longer interesting. And so the key is to, to, un, is to use reverse engineering to understand why something works, but then critically to evolve it just enough to make it your own thing. So I talked about Twilight and what how, how that failed originally. Well, what was successful? What was the next iteration of that? It was, it was a, a Abraham Lincoln as a vampire hunter. That succeeded. Why? Because it was taking the idea of, you know, chasing vampires and adding the level of history. So it's all about combining different elements. And that's what tends to be successful. You know, we often, I think, conflate, and maybe this is something you want to get to, get to Scott. I, I feel like we conflate the idea of originality with creativity. Those two terms are not the same thing. Just because you are not original doesn't mean you're not creative. And just because you're creative doesn't mean you're necessarily original. And as it turns out, originality tends to backfire. So it's, it's, it's those, it's those, it oper, it's those uh, iterations that are completely new and overwhelm audiences with originality that tend to fall flat. And it's because as a species, we tend to be distrustful of the new. And that distrust extends to the way we experience objects and experiences. So, uh, I, I talk about in the book about this study that was conducted by the Harvard Business School looking at the type of medical uh, research grants that get funding. And they, what they did in the study was they had um, objective raters code the proposals for the degree of novelty that they each had. And then they looked to see whether they, whether the degree of novelty predicted receiving funding. And what they found was that the grant proposals that had the most originality tended to get rejected. The grant proposals that had no originality also got rejected. What got funding? It was the grants that had a minor dose of novelty. And the researchers refer to this as optimal newness. And I think what that teaches us, and is really critical if you're someone who's in the arts, or if you're someone who's even, you know, in the business world trying to um, introduce a new product or service, you don't want to overshoot the mark by overwhelming people with originality. You want What you want to do is you want to give them something that they have experienced before, and then modified or combined it with an insight or an approach from a different field that makes it slightly new. That you're, you're far more likely to win popular uh, um, approval and respect and admiration if that if you go with that approach. Yeah, that's consistent with the creativity literature, the science of creativity literature. Uh, usually, creativity is defined as both originality and meaningfulness. Um, one without the other, it doesn't equal creativity. So you, if you're just wildly original, like a schizophrenic word salad. Um, but it has no meaning. <laughs> it has no meaning, you know, like people aren't going to be like, it's brilliant, you know? Yeah. Um, it has to, you know, it has to fit into someone's pre-existing schemas to at least some degree, you know, at least some degree. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, cool, cool. 
Um, I'm going to ask a, a very unrelated question, but okay. what algorithms like Tinder teach us about improving our skills? Or oh, is it related? It's is it hugely related. related. Okay. It's hugely related. Yeah. So, so uh, this is uh, this is another uh, interesting story. This is in chapter two of Decoding Greatness, where I look at what algorithms can teach us about finding hidden patterns. And the way that algorithms work is that they present, in the case of Tinder, they present users with a small sample set of potential mates, and they ask them to swipe right if they find them attractive, swipe left if they find them unattractive. And then it uses, what Tinder algorithm does, it then uses um, the people you've swiped right on to look for commonalities that, and that, so for, and there may not even be things that you are conscious of. So for example, let's say, Scott, that you've rated, you know, 10 uh, potential partners and um, five of them were attractive to you. What Tinder's algorithm will do is- They're it usually will all redheads. <laughs> well, you spoiled, you spoiled the the big reveal. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But they may maybe other things besides redheads. Maybe you're conscious yeah. of redheads, but you're not conscious of the fact that they all tend to like spicy foods, or they like the outdoors, or they're introverted. Um, all, all of those types of um, features that may be hidden in their personality profiles that you may not be optimizing for on the conscious level, but in fact are the things that appeal to you. That's what enables Tinder's algorithm to then present new potential partners that share those traits and increase their chances of helping you find um, uh, the right mate and live happily ever after. But without that initial set of examples, Tinder's algorithm is fairly useless, and the same is true for all of us. If we're looking to find patterns in extraordinary work, what we need are examples of the types of work that we find resonant, which is why one of the first strategies I offer in this book is to become a collector. So if you want to get good at reverse engineering and learning from the best in your field, it helps if you can identify examples that you find resonant. And so I argue that rather than simply passively enjoying experiences, start a collection. Uh, I can tell you, you know, when we think about collections, we think about physical objects. We think about stamps. We think about uh, rocks or gems or wines. But that definition of collections being uh, uh only relevant to physical objects is too narrow. And in fact, I can tell you that uh, presenters will collect presentation decks, copywriters will collect headlines. I'm a writer. I don't know about you, Scott, but I collect stories. I collect academic journal articles. I collect powerful verbs. Uh, all of the things that I, I will then uh, draw from as I'm writing my next book or my next article. And so when you have a collection of the works that you consider extraordinary, now you can start to unpack them for patterns. And it's by comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary, meaning the things you have in your collection versus the things that didn't make your collection. And now you, by comparing the two, you can't help but identify some of the ingredients that went into creating it. And so if you, if you, you know, the question I often get is, well, how am I supposed to create this collection, it could be as simple as just starting a Google Doc, you know, of if you're a marketer, you can start collecting websites that you consider impactful. Uh, if you are a writer, you can use Google Docs as well. If you are um, a designer, you can start collecting um, images on Pinterest. And again, it's just about having that personal museum that you can then go to and visit, not just for unpacking and, and reverse engineering those great examples, but also just to go somewhere where you, when you want to be inspired. Instead of just simply looking at that blank page, if you're a writer, you can have a collection of powerful openings, scan them before you start writing, and I, I bet you it'll make your work a lot easier.
Cool. You know, the secret uh, Easter egg of this podcast is you're actually teaching people how to learn. Exactly uh, right. Not, not just to code greatness, but learn anything. Um, uh, so, okay. So how, what did the, what does the Ritz Carlton hotel chain know about this? Because you, you say they, they know a little bit something about how to, uh, improve at anything. Absolutely. And so the Ritz Carlton is, you know, if, if you've ever, um, looked into high priced hotels, Ritz Carlton is usually at the top of the list. They're, 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 uh, year after year, one of the best at customer service and how they got really good at customer service is by identifying a particular metric that they wanted to get really good at. And uh, I use this example because in the first half of decoding greatness, I show you all these examples of, uh, examples of how people are reverse engineering in different fields. And then I show you how you can reverse engineer formulas and then also how you can modify their formulas just enough to make the, the winning formula original and novel to you. The second half of the book is about bridging the gap between your vision, in other words, the formula you're trying to execute, and your current ability. Because chances are at the beginning, when you're just starting out, your skill level won't be high enough in, uh, to execute against the formulas that you've decoded. And so it's critical to know how to skill build quickly. And the first chapter in that section on bridging the gap between vision and ability is uh, called the scoreboard principle. And the scoreboard principle is simple. It simply states that the secret to improving at anything is me measuring. In other words, anything you measure, you are likely to improve on. Measurement begets improvement. That's the, that's measure, the yeah, measurement. Measurement. measurement be yeah. Measurement begets improvement. That's what the scoreboard principle ultimately states. Measurement begets improvement. Anything you want to get at, start measuring. And the Ritz-Carlton is committed to one particular metric because they know it will mean everything for the success of their hotel. In the case of the Ritz-Carlton, that metric is net promoter scores. Now, net promoter scores is just a fancy market research way of saying how many people who leave your hotel are likely to recommend the experience to a friend or a colleague. They don't just simply measure customer uh, customer satisfaction, although they're interested in that. They're primarily interested in net promoter scores because they realize that it's not enough just for people to have a good experience. You want your customers talking to their friends and colleagues because then ha that's how you get you grow your customer base and get new customers. Uh, so they're interested not just in in getting having people who have great experiences. They're looking to create raving fans. And so after you leave Ritz Carlton Hotel, you'll get an email within 24 hours asking you how likely you are to recommend the experience to a friend or a colleague. And the, every Ritz-Carlton is obsessed with this number. They share it with their staff on a daily basis. And it's one of the reasons they've uncovered leading indicators that improve the hotel experience for their guests. So in the case of the Ritz-Carlton, one of the things they discovered is that one of the biggest drivers of net promoter scores is the extent to which you fulfill customers' unexpressed desires. So there's two things that people often use. They use expressed need or is the thing you specifically ask for. So an example of this is if I call up the Ritz-Carlton and I say, do you have a cafe? Mm -hmm. The answer to that is yes. But if they want to go further and they want to address my unexpressed desire, they might say, and this they'll often do this at the Ritz-Carlton, is they'll say, yes, we do, sir. Would you like me to text you the menu? You see how that's taking it one step further by wow. trying to read into what it is I really want, not just what I actually ask for. And they that's do this good. spectacularly at the Ritz Carlton. It's why they become it's crafty. And it's why they've become one of the best uh, hotel chains in the world. In that context, is a good thing. 
you know, I don't know how much you want to be going around your daily life, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a good way to make friends, new friends, um, and lovers, <laughs> but, um, that's, that's very strategic. Wow. Um, okay. I want to talk about, I want to transition for a second to talk about courage. Yeah. Cause that one, that part of your book kind of blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> right. Um, cause we're often told that growth requires courage, right? Um, and the only way to improve is to, Get outside your comfort zone, learn from your risks, uh, or, or take risks, learn from your mistakes. Um, but you've found, you know, reverse engineering things, that's not always the case or necessarily the case, right? Yeah. If you, if you look at the most successful businesses, they're taking risks all the time, but they're not necessarily putting everything on the line. They're being very strategic in the risks that they take by minimizing the impact if those risks fail. So a great example of this is, and by the way, this is an approach we can all use in our own lives to improve our um, ability to grow new skills. And so one example I give is how businesses will often test with a small subgroup of their customers before releasing a new product out into the field. And so, uh, you know, there are all these examples of companies that, you know, test in small markets, often they'll do it in uh uh, um, less developed countries because the mar the price of advertising there is lower. Uh, and so they're able to get some feedback that it then improves the product before they release into more expensive markets. Uh, we as individuals can learn from this. I give the example in the book of Tim Ferriss and how Tim Ferriss came upon the title for his first book, The Four Hour Workweek. In the case of Tim Ferriss, he didn't have a huge audience at the time. He was a relative unknown. And so what he did was he took $100 out on Google AdWords and he tested the different titles he was considering to determine which title got him the most clicks. It cost him $100. He didn't take, you know, and he was able to get some, some, some great feedback right out of the gate. What he didn't do was he didn't just release the book out and then, you know, find his courage and hope that it worked out, he got some feedback and cost him $100 to do it. That's just one example is, is applying it with a small audience. So in, in, you, in the case of everyday individuals, if you have a new product you're considering, uh, if you're working in a, in a business, for example, instead of simply releasing that new product and hoping that it works, test it with a few customers uh, or a few clients and, and get some feedback in advance before you invest some time producing it. We all have access to test audiences now on places like Facebook and Google. Uh, it doesn't cost a ton of money and it gives you some immediate feedback to determine whether you're on the right path. So, you know, for example, if you're considering writing a novel, why not run ads to it as if it existed and determine whether or not it gets some clicks? That'll tell you whether or not you're on the right path. Another great example of this, uh, Scott, this is one of my favorite examples in the book, is um, selling first and then building later. This is what a lot of businesses do is they will sell first and build later. And a great example of this is the story of um, Nick Swinmerm. Um, and Nick Swinmerm was in the uh, turn of the century. He was living in Silicon Valley. He was looking for a pair of shoes at the mall, couldn't find them, and thought to himself, man, there has to be a better way to buy shoes. And so what he did was he opened up a website and he didn't have any money to build a shoe warehouse. So what he did was he went to his local shoe store and he took photos of their shoes and he came to an agreement with the manager and said, look, I'm gonna take photos of your shoes and if anybody buys them, I'm gonna come to your store, I'm gonna physically give you the money and I'm gonna ship it to them in the mail. And the manager's like, okay. And Nick Swinmerm is one of the founders of Zappos. And it's a great example of how 
he did not, you know, try to raise a tremendous amount of funds. He didn't find his courage and invest his life savings into a shoe warehouse. Instead of what he's, he was very strategic. He sold first and he built later. And again, that's an approach that any of us can use now on Kickstarter or places like that where you can test out your ideas. Take big swings. Take lots of big swings because that's how you're going to learn. But just don't put everything on the line. And if you are feeling hesitant because you don't have the courage, chances are you're not necessarily minimizing the risk involved. And that's a far better approach to success is find ways of testing your ideas without putting everything on the line. It makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. It's sometimes that takes courage, though. Sometimes that is courage, being able to uh, withstand the uh, the feedback, you know, of uh, in order to grow. It, it does take. Uh, I, I don't deny the importance of courage at all. I, what I don't think is true, and I think this is kind of like the the thing that we've been led to believe is like we should. All it takes is more courage, or all it takes is perseverance. Like sometimes right. there's a limit to those things, and we're far better off optimizing by reducing the impact of having courage or, or taking risks than we are in just elevating our courage. I got you. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, good point. Um, well, so in terms of how we learn, why is repetition, just the repetition model not, not necessarily the way to go? You know what? Can I go back a second? Because I feel like there's one other thing I want to say about that. Oh, yeah. I feel like this is an important discussion. And, you know, when we talk about courage, part of the reason why the impact of failing is so difficult to stomach is because we've overinvested in a particular aspect of our life. And so uh, one of the things that businesses do, and this is another one of the strategies I discuss, is they have portfolio businesses. They have a wide array of products and services in different fields and industries. So if any one particular thing doesn't work out, they're okay because they've got a million other things. The same is true for all of us. If we put, in, if we put all our eggs in one basket, in the career basket, for example, and that one yeah. career thing doesn't work out, let's say you've invested two years in writing a novel and that novel isn't selling, that's disaster. But if you have a novel and you also have a consulting business and then you have a podcast on the side, then all of a sudden that novel that you've invested time in not working out is still painful, but it's not quite as devastating. And uh, the same is true for human relationships. If you have two or three close friends and you get into a fight with one of them uh, or things aren't going well, you, you all of a sudden, it's, you know, it's devastating. You feel like you need to do everything to fix that relationship. But if you have 10 close friends and one, one's not going well, you, you can give, give them the space, to, you know, to get back and, and maybe touch base with them after things have cooled off after a few months. You know, I've, I've had some, some interesting conversations with high school friends during the previous election. And um, fortunately, that election is now over and we can talk about other things and we're still friends and that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like if, if they were my only friends in life, I would either have to change my worldview or I, I would just be really depressed for a while. But because I fortunately have a good network of people, it was okay to have those uncomfortable conversations, set them aside and then come back to them. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, cool. Thanks. Thanks for further elaborating on that. Sure. Um, well, do you want to talk about that expertise uh, idea, you know, with the repetition? It, oh, yeah. I, I think that a lot of people have this idea that the way to get better is just to practice, 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 meaning repetition. Yeah. But I'm happy to talk about you, this. I, 
it's funny to say this to you because you've written about this extensively and quite well. Uh, and, uh, right. uh, so the idea of simply practicing. So in other words, if I'm just trying to get better, better piano and I'm just going to play the same song all the time and uh, not push myself to focus on the parts of the song where I have tremendous difficulty, I'm likely mm. not going to improve. And part of the difficulty with practice is that the human mind is constantly working to automate things, meaning that uh, you know, one of the reasons we're able to now drive or brush our teeth while thinking about what we're going to have for dinner or what we're going to do the next day is because we're not consciously thinking very carefully about those physical activities. We've now automated it. Uh, and, and, and on paper, automaticity is wonderful. It allows you to, to multitask and do lots of different things. But when it comes to Im improvement, automaticity is a barrier because you're not paying careful attention. And unless you're paying careful attention, chances are you're not going to identify those parts where you're struggling and you're not going to push yourself to improve on them. And so that's one example uh, of how practice actually gets more difficult with time. And the solution comes to us from the work of Anders Ericsson, where he talks about deliberate practice as being one pathway to overcoming the challenges of automaticity, which involves identifying those parts where you're struggling and and repeating just those parts uh, and also increasing the level of difficulty at times so that you're constantly stretching and forced to pay attention. Um, I also give the example in the book about being strategic with your hobbies. One of the ways that you can improve is to identify a hobby that has overlapping skills um, with, the, with, the, with the primary work that you're trying to get good at. And so this is a form of cross-training. So athletes, for example, football players will, will often do uh, practice martial arts in the off-season because getting really quick hand movements uh, will help them with their, with their tackling and with their um, – what's the word, Scott, when they when – they, uh, Blocking, that's right. Blocking. Uh, with their tackling and with their blocking. Uh, for professionals, if you're having, if you're trying, for example, let's say you're a salesperson and you're trying to get really good and comfortable with the idea of being on the spot and presenting in front of large groups, that can be intimidating. But if you take up the hobby of karaoke singing, where mm -hmm. you're also pushing yourself to be a little bit uncomfortable, that can actually help you be a better presenter when the time comes for you to present in front of a large group. And so the idea is, um, to identify hobbies that make you better at your job and invest in those. And another great example of this, and you might, you're probably familiar with this as well, which is that a lot of executives are now really interested in improv comedy. And it's not because they're suddenly, um, captivated with the idea of being funny. It's because they realize that there are a lot of overlapping skills. In order to be good at improv, you need to be really present. You need to be a great listener and you need to think on your feet. And those are the same skills necessary to become a better executive. And so again, you know, we don't, when we think about improving, we often think about how we spend our time when we're at work, but we may be better off thinking about how we uh, utilize our free time and our hobbies in order to ultimately reach our goals. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And you know I love improv. Yeah, I do. Uh, well, c tell me a little about the role of visualization, uh, you know, v or visualizing success. Um, you, some people, you know, think that they swear by that. But you're, you found not only doesn't not work, but it might make you less likely to succeed? <laughs> is that right? right? That is correct. That is correct. So, so oh, you amazing mirror. Oh, you face me exactly. So, in the I case live in of, my imagination. <laughs> well, visualizing success can be 
fun in the moment, but what it won't do is it won't make success more likely. And there are all these great examples of celebrities who swear by visualizing success. So probably the most best known example is Jim Carrey, who wrote himself a check for $10 million when he was back when he was a struggling artist and a struggling actor. And uh, as it turned out, just before that check was about to expire, he got the role in Dumb and Dumber that transformed his career. Another great example is uh, Andrescu, who's a uh, Bianca Andrescu, a phenomenal tennis player who won the U.S. Open. She wrote herself a check for the prize money uh, for the U.S. Open long before she succeeded. And she went on Good Morning America and made a statement along the lines of, I believe we control reality with our minds. Now, that is a common Mm. sentiment online. And it's an appealing one. The idea that if you just, you know, you get that vision board out and you start clipping images of where your life is going to be in 10 years, then you're going to get there. And I think there's some value to having goals for sure. But the challenge with visualizing success is it actually, what the research says is actually makes you less likely to succeed. And this is uh, a study done at the UCLA where they took introductory, introductory psychology students and they divided them into three groups. And this was just before the midterm. Group one was asked to visualize themselves achieving a high score on the tests. That was the visualizing success condition. The second group was asked to visualize themselves studying for the test. And the third group was simply asked to report how often they studied before the exam. And what they found was that the group that uh, visualized themselves succeeding and achieving a high score did worse than either of the two groups. The group that did best was the group that visualized themselves studying for the test. And it's because forcing yourself to, to identify when and where and how you're going to study leads you to front load some pretty critical decisions like, where are you going to be? What books are you going to need? Where are you going to put your phone? All of the decisions that are required to study effectively. And when you front load those decisions, you're better prepared to actually execute against your goal. It's if-then thinking. And so what that the key takeaway here is that if you want to get better, visualization can help, but far better to visualize yourself doing the the actual activities necessary to succeed rather than simply visualizing the outcome. So visualize process, not outcome, and it can work in anything. It can work in public speaking, it can work with studying for a test, it can work for a job interview. Visualize the process. Yeah, that that's really good advice. <laughs> that's that's actually really good advice. Um, when I was very when I was very young, I used to just daydream about being an NBA star, and that didn't didn't lead to that. <laughs> also, didn't help that Kobe Bryant was on our basketball team. <laughs> what, what do you mean, your high school team? And middle school. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Wow. No, Warmer in high school and Balkenwood Middle School. Um, so that didn't help. You know. Uh, <laughs> Maybe no amount of visualizing process either would have gotten me to beat him on the court. But anyway, um, I I want to just circle back to like the very beginning question I asked you because um, I do feel like it's the elephant in the room with this discussion, and that's the role of talent. You know, I noticed you didn't have a chapter on like decoding greatness. I noticed that talent really, really matters because the thing is, the the talent gets weeded out at that stage. You know, that no longer is that the predictor of things. So how do you know that by decoding greatness, by looking at those who are great, this is the same criticism that's been, you know, leveled against Anders' work, and I think rightfully so. Um, Anders really underplayed the role of talent because he was looking at those at stages of the development of the expertise process, a world-class expertise where mm-hmm. talent was no longer the biggest predictor, but it was a pretty big predictor earlier on. So. Yeah. 
Um, so what do you see as the role of talent there? I think, I think talent is, is certainly plays an important role. There's no question. And, and so does practice. If you practice effectively, you're going to get better. If you are born with a particular set of strengths that lend themselves to your particular field, that's vital. Uh, but I, I guess I'm less interested in identifying the true causes of greatness than I am about identifying the tools that any schlub off the street can use to improve mm-hmm. their skills quickly. That is a far more interesting to me. So, you know, I've often thought about, you know, other people in our space, um, Scott, about, you know, there are people who are really interested in identifying what the top, 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 top people in the world are doing and then popularizing that. And I think that's interesting work. I follow it. I read it. I'm not interested in that as, you know, like I'm not interested in microdosing LSD. That's not for me. That's not for most people. Mm. What I am interested in. You only want a macrodose. (laughs) <laughs> Macrodose, right? More, more interesting to me are yeah. the tools and techniques that everyday people can use right now to get better. And I think that this is a vital and overlooked approach that people don't talk about. Now, we didn't touch about why, why it is that people don't talk about it. I think this is important. Mm. I think the reason people don't talk about reverse engineering, even though a huge number of people at the top of their fields do this. I think that they're secretly ashamed. They're ashamed that they are copying. I think they think that they're, maybe they think this, maybe they don't. Yeah. I'm going to argue that reverse engineering is not copying. And even if it were copying, copying would make you more creative. And so this is one of the most important findings. in I think in this book, one of the most important, most interesting findings is how if you actually do take the time to copy someone else's work privately, not passing it off as your own, just simply, you know, the for, copy work is an idea. I'm sure you've discussed previously on the show. It's the, it, to, to, to give you an example of what that means, it's simply taking a finished work and then trying to reproduce it, whether it be a painting or um, a, a blog post or a book, reading a page, trying to recreate it from memory. That process actually makes you more creative, not less. And Mm. this is not just me saying this. There's research out of the University of Tokyo. This is creativity experts who brought people into the lab. These were amateur artists. They divided them into two groups. Group one was asked to create original artwork every day for three days straight. Group two was asked to create original artwork on day one. On day two, they were asked to copy the work of an established artist. And then on day three, they were asked to resume creating original works. And what they were looking at, what the experimenters were interested in, is which of the two groups was most creative on the final day of the experiment. And so they brought in objective raters, and they had them code and rate the the, the artwork produced on the final day of the experiment, looking at uh, the level of creativity. And what they found was that the second group, the group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist, was significantly more creative on the final day of the experiment. And it wasn't simply by replicating the approach that they had uh, learned from on the second day of the experiment by copying the established artist. It was been going off in completely different directions by doing mm-hmm. things that had nothing to do with the work that they had observed. And so the question is why? Why does copying make us more creative? And it's because when we do that copy work uh, uh, um, exercise that I described earlier, where you're copying someone else's established work and um, trying to reproduce it from memory, what that process does is it forces you to compare your instinctive inclinations against the decisions of a master. And often what that does is when you're comparing your instinctive inclinations to the work of a master, you are 
uh, enlightened and you open your eyes are open to all these different possibilities that are hidden in your work that you had been ignoring until now. And so far from um, re dismissing the idea of re reverse engineering or studying the work of someone else's someone else's work really closely as as something that only hacks do, I think we need a better approach for learning from the best in the world so that we can not just uh, elevate our skill level, but also enhance our creativity. Oh, that, that's, that, that felt like a good place to end. Um, you, you say, you say in your book, no matter what your field, your capacity for achieving at a high level need not be defined by whether or not you are fortunate enough to be born gifted or happen to receive the guidance of an expert. I do think that reading your book can help any, any schlub. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe not become a genius, um, but um, certainly learn faster, learn better, um, and and maybe even have a, a better quality of life. So, That's thank you so much for being on my podcast today and sharing your uh, your your great uh, your great wisdom. Oh, my my great pleasure, and thanks for the great questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard. I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you'd prefer a completely ad-free experience, you can join us at patreon.com slash psychpodcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.